On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. I, of course, am Mitch LaFawn. That is, uh, it is amazing how that uh, that works out. And of course, uh, I am in the mood for this show. The the rhythm is right, and we are going to move to the music that we are going to talk about. And uh, if we're lucky, uh, well, we can roll all night. We're rock and roll all night, which is also very good. Uh, since we last spoke, I have had a chance to see a Foreigner, Melissa Etheridge, and a bunch of other bands. And I got to say, uh, Melissa Etheridge, the sound coming from that PA, that, that just terrific. I don't know who her road crew is or, or what they're doing, but man, that sound was crystal clear. So if if Melissa comes through town, I can guarantee that you are going to certainly enjoy the sonics of it all because it was just it was just perfect. I mean, it was just perfect. Also, while in Watertown, New York, on August twenty first, I had a chance to uh, sing. <laughs> Perhaps not the appropriate word, but for for these purposes, I had the chance to sing "Lick It Up" with the Foreigners Road Crew at Soundcheck. Yes, I have now sang on Foreigners stage. And uh, listen, the video I put up the video on Twitter and Facebook. And please uh, understand, I have no illusions of me being a rock and roll singer. It was just um, I don't want to call it a goof, but it was fun. You know, it was a, it was a fun moment. Uh, today, we have drummer Roger Earl from Foghat, and uh, you know the his his conversation was quite compelling. I, it, it was it was amazing. He was very very uh, talkative, which is great. Nothing worse than a guest that gives you yes no answers. So uh, kudos to Roger. Now the band, of course, is still touring. This this band never stops. Man, Foghat tours and tours and tours and tours. And um, anyway, it, it, it was an interesting uh, conversation. Uh, coming up in September, uh, as I scale back to a show a week, we're going to have uh, Dirty Honey. We should have the band Cold. Remember them? Uh, they have some new music out, and uh, they are going to head out on tour, so we'll talk to them too. And I've got a Canadian artist called Rock Voisine which will be the next episode, actually. And some of you, of course, uh, may know Rock, if you're especially Canadian listeners or European listeners, because he's done well in France and Belgium and other countries. And some of my American friends, you may not know who Rock is, though he did have a a big hit with Richard Marks back in um, 1996, I believe it was. But he, he was sort of... You know, he was another sort of a Brian Adams, um, Corey Hart kind of guy. Been around since 1986, so we're talking 33-year career. 
and um, it, it is mostly addressed for for Canadian fans, just because he he's not known so much in uh, south of the border. But I thought it was important to talk to him because he's doing a, a charity gig with the money going to the uh, Heart and Stroke Foundation uh, up here in Canada. And um, of course, I've had those two heart surgeries, so it's it, it was it's dear to my heart, but. If you don't know him, I, I do suggest you listen because it, it is an interesting chat. He he is a great artist and, and do check him out. Rock Voisin and Rock is R O C H. Um, I, I think you'll you'll discover there's he he does a series of uh, albums called Americana, which is a little bit like Rod Stewart's Great American uh, so, uh, Songbook uh, albums. Um, he, you know, covering Ring of Fire, Heart, uh, Heart of Gold, and, and stuff like that. A little more of a country twang to it, but but definitely is something worth uh, checking out. Anyway, let me uh, get over and oh well, you know, hey, while you're checking out stuff, let's do the gratuitous plugs. Loudtracks.com forward slash Mitch for all your Mitch merchandise. I do have Mitch picks, Mitch guitar picks now, which are not on Loud Tracks. I have those uh, actually downstairs in the living room. And folks are asking me, how do I get one? How do I get one? How do I get one? Well, I had seen that more as a business card that I would hand out uh, at industry events or at shows and stuff like that. But folks want them. So I got to sort of figure out how much do I sell these for and how do I get them to you? Because, you know, I'm not going to charge you, uh, whatever, two bucks for a guitar pick and then spend, you know, two dollars on an envelope and four dollars on postage. I mean, that 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 wouldn't make sense. But but on the other hand. It seems a little uh, much to say, well, you want one guitar pick, it's going to cost you 10 bucks. So, you know, so it's kind of a, I don't know how I'm going to do this kind of thing. Because um, I don't really want to charge you 10 bucks for a guitar pick. But at the end of the day, to uh, to drive to the post office, which is about 20 kilometers from me, to, to get uh, mailers or envelopes that are secure enough that they won't, you know, the picks won't just fall out the side and to post it. Well, there, there's cost associated, so it's it's going to cost me probably six, seven, eight dollars just to get it in the mail. When you factor in uh, the gas and, and the envelope and the postage. Um, anyway, um, tell me how we should do this if you want one. Uh, they're great picks, by the way. But uh, oh, oh yes, and I was also going to say while you're checking out stuff, go to my Facebook, my personal Facebook or my Twitter, and find that video of me singing, quotey quote quote. <laughs> Uh, lick it up with um, Foreigner uh, on stage, or the Foreigner band. Uh, no, not the band, the Foreigner um, crew guys. But I will say this in my defense. I had no in-ear monitors, and there were no wedges, so I could not hear myself, nor the band, which, probably a good thing. And uh, speaking of good things, here is the one, the only, and mighty drummer for Foghat, Roger Earl. We are speaking with a fog hat drummer, Roger Earl. Roger, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's nice talking to you, but we haven't said much yet, so we'll wait and see how that turns out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guarantee it'll turn out great, and, and we'll 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 try to All go right. for about half an hour. And of course, uh, the the first question, I guess, is just the. Uh, uh, where's the rock and roll, right? I mean, that is a great song from the latest album, Shaken and Stirred, with uh, Earl and the Agitators. Um, I've been listening to that album for the last couple of days. It's it's brilliant. It's it's fun. So let me start with that. Before we go into the history and why this and why that, and 
talk to me about yeah. Earl and the Agitators. Um, why not a Foghat album? Why, why Earl and the Agitators? And it, it's just a great slice of old school rock and roll. I mean, it's, 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 it really, it really is a fun album to listen to. Thank you. Um, well, actually, how that came about was um, we were two or three songs short for our for Foghat's last album under the influence, and I'd become good friends with Scott Holt, who uh, was uh, the guitar player with Buddy Guy's band for about 10 years, so you know uh, he could play. And uh, I invited Scott down to um, our studio down in Florida, Boogie Motel South, you know, to help write some songs with myself and uh, Brian, Brian Bassett. So it was me, Scott, and Brian, and Brian was running the board. And uh, instead of three songs, we wrote 17. Typical fucking musicians. <laughs> so, um, we picked three songs that we did on the Foghat album. In fact, Scott's actually singing on a couple of the songs on the last Foghat album, uh, Under the Influence. Actually, we had a number of guests on that. Uh, uh, Nick Jamieson played on it, uh, some bass on it, and uh, Savoy Brown's uh, Kim Simmons played on a number of songs, so it was um, we had a little help from our friends. But what happened was we had all these songs left over, and uh, most of them were like pretty much finished. It was myself, Scott, uh, Brian. Actually, it was the last record that Craig McGregor played on. Um, I called up, it, we, we'd done all the arrangements and, and recorded everything, the drums, guitars, and vocals, but we had no bass on it. Well, Brian's a really good bass player, but um, I sent some of the songs to Craig McGregor, who, you know, of course was ill. He had uh, lung cancer. And he was a big fan of Scott's. He played with him a couple of times and met him a number of times. And he said, I want to play on that. So uh, Craig came down to the studio down in Florida. And uh, within three days, actually even two days, he put the bass on all the songs. And uh, uh, yeah, it was... Um, that's where that started. And we've done a few gigs together, uh, opening up for Foghat and or uh, if it, financially it could work. Obviously, you can't get as much money as uh, Foghat. But, um, yeah, I love playing with Scott Holt. He's, uh, he's a fantastic human being. Uh, myself and Brian, you know, love the guy. And I'd really like to see him actually do something. So that was kind of a help. The reason it wasn't a Foghat album is because it wasn't Foghat, even though it ended up having three members of Foghat on it. Um, but it seemed like a good idea. The name came from... Uh, we were in Dark Horse Studios in Nashville. We were finishing up on some other uh, tracks that went on there. And um, afterwards, uh, we were drinking some Foghat wine. I believe it was a... Not a Pinot... It was a Cabernet Sauvignon, that's it. And I, Brian had polished off one of the bottles already, and he'd opened up the second bottle, and then he jumped up on the table and declared, Earl and the Agitators. Now, by this time, we were all sort of laughing, and that's where the name came from. So we have to thank Brian Bassett for that. Then we have to thank Brian Bassett for a whole bunch of stuff. Well, and, and by the way, for, if folks want to check it out, Earl and the Agitators.com. It's also on Spotify and the streaming sites. And, and it really is, it's a fun slice of rock and roll. Now, you did mention Under the Influence, which uh, came out in 
2016. Uh, first of all, talk to me about making new music. Is that something that still sort of you need to do creatively and you're a musician and so that's what you do? And is there a next new album or at some point you just say, you know what, let's just go play the 15 greatest hits. We've done enough. You know, how do you sort of see it? It, well, you hit the nail on the head. The typical musicians. I mean, like, yeah, um, you know, the creative juices. Uh, I, I always enjoyed doing. It. In fact, every band I ever played in, right from the very beginning, the first band I was in when I was sixteen or seventeen, uh, with guys that I went to school with. Uh, the lead singer was Ray Dorset, who was in uh, Mungo Jerry, and uh, the other two guys, Dick and Dave, were like school boyfriends uh, when we went to school together, and. We used to do a bunch of originals then. Uh, we did mostly like um, blues, rock and roll kind of stuff, but we wrote originals then. And also when I was in Savoy Brown, um, Chris Jordan, I guess, was the main songwriter, along with Kim and Clumps and Dave to a degree. And uh, we didn't just copy, uh, you know, American blues artist. Um, I don't think we were really capable of doing that. But it was th that influence, and I think Chris Jordan especially, um, came up with these fantastic songs uh, that were obviously sort of blues-influenced and had that sort of genre in mind, for want of a better word. Um, but they were original. They weren't like, you know, just copies of uh, American blues artists. And I think Savoy Brown did this, uh, you know, did that. And I think Foghat does that. I mean, like, uh, you know, with, uh, like, I Just Want to Make Love to You, that was, very different from uh, previous versions uh, and same with other you know blues tunes that we recorded we changed them just enough to make them ours if you will uh, yeah uh, we're going to be in fact we were just down in uh, Florida myself Brian and Scott again um, we're working on some stuff for Scott's uh, upcoming record and uh, we called, what did we do? We did about four songs down there. And Scott has a plethora of songs, if that's the right word. And uh, I just really want to see him do something because I think he's a real talent and, uh, you know, fabulous human being. I love working with him. Well, we'll have Earl and the Ag Agitators too as well. Um, and, and you did cover a couple of Savoy Brown uh, songs on that one. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about, for you, about the importance of America and the American market. There's a couple of bands that I've interviewed in the past, including Status Quo, including Thunder, who are huge in the UK. They can tour the UK day in, day out, no problem. They come to Canada, they come to the United States, and they just don't have a place to play. How important was that decision in keeping the band alive to move to the United States and establishing yourself here? Um, well, uh, let me go back to the day. What happened was uh, when myself and Lonesome Dave left Savoy Brown, it, that was amicable. Uh, in fact, I still stayed friends over the years with uh, Kim Simmons. Um, but his, the manager of Savoy Brown uh, decided that he was going to stop us from play, ever playing in Europe. Um, Savoy Brown was... Uh, with the Chrysalis Agency and the manager, Harry Simmons, had uh, Chicken Shack and Savoy Brown, and they were two of, uh, two of the biggest acts in England. And I talked to uh, Chris Ellis and Terry Wright, who owned Chrysalis, and they said, 
we can't book you because Harry uh, said he would take these bands away. So he kind of screwed us. But what happened was um, we got a record deal with uh, Bezel Records, thanks to Albert Grossman. He came over and saw us. And uh, they were affiliated to Warner Brothers. And um, the publicist for the Beatles, oh, what's his name? Um, how can I forget it? Uh, it wasn't Epstein. No, that was the manager. No, no, no. It was the manager. Um, uh, let me. Can I come back to that? Can you edit that? Yes, but I can also. I can also look it up right now. Let's see. The the the, the good thing about uh, doing this. Derek Taylor. Derek Taylor. There you go. Derek Taylor. Uh, I've only had one cup of coffee so far. <laughs> um, Derek Taylor really took a shine to the band. Really lovely man, and. Uh, he got us some dates in England. Uh, we did a tour with Captain Beefheart for about three weeks, um, and he got and he got us a number of dates. But we couldn't work in England, and nobody would book us. And so uh, the album was released over here in the states, and um, I just want to make love to you became a regional hit all over the place. Um, and our manager Tony O'Teeter at the time was an American, and he said, "Come over." And we all went, okay. So we came over, I think 72 was our first tour. We were over here for like 13 months. Uh, we played anywhere and everywhere. You know, it was like, it was our, it was our shot. We, uh, we first date we played was in, um, uh, uh, I'll come, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, um, it was like coming home. I mean, I was always a huge fan of uh, the States. I loved it here. I felt we were comfortable. It's the land where music came from, you know, uh, jazz, blues, big band, rock and roll, uh, country and Western. Uh, it's like, this is where music came from. Soul music, R&B, you know, it's like, this is the land of music. And, and they export it all over the world. You know, uh, the French, the English, uh, Japanese rappers, Afghani rappers, everybody, even like contemporary music still goes everywhere. We're like, uh, or I should say in the States, American music is like, you know, what makes the world of music go around. Uh, so it was very comfortable coming here. But because we didn't play in Europe and in England, uh, I think, you know, we can't get arrested over there because of that. And I think probably Status Quo and other bands, actually Status Quo is one of my favorite bands, great band. Uh, because they didn't tour here consistently, I don't think enough people got to, you know, hear them and see them. So uh, that's probably the reason they struggled here. And uh, maybe the reason we didn't actually struggle to get an audience because we played all the time. Uh, we still do. We do about 70 shows a year. Actually, we're just uh, this Wednesday, uh, we're leaving for Europe. We're playing in Dortmund, Germany. And then on, on the Friday night and on Saturday night, we're playing Liège in uh, Belgium. We're headlining a festival there. So maybe things are looking up for Foghat in Europe. <laughs> well, one can certainly hope. In fact, I was looking at a, uh, a Belgian site today talking about the upcoming show and I'm trying to see where it says here but it was uh, translating from french to english but 
it essentially says that uh, Roger Earl and uh, Foghat continue the esprit of Foghat, the spirit of Foghat, and that the, the, it's going to be a great show. And so, in fact, let me just quickly talk about that because you have had a lot of lineup yeah. changes. We know that, but so have a lot of other yeah. bands. Talk to me about sort of delivering the spirit of Foghat and, and keeping the music um what's the word i'm looking for uh, you know just keep, alive yeah just keeping it alive going, yeah. going. uh well um if you go back to 1984 um rod price had already left the band in 1980 so we had uh eric cartwright playing guitar um craig mcgregor took some time off playing bass around that time and we had a couple of various bass players in the band. He, he, Craig took time off to bring his son up. Um, and then Dave, Lads and Dave moved back to England in nine, uh, 1984, 1985. So I'm left on my own. Like, uh, you know, I mowed the lawn, fixed the cars. Uh, and then I joined a band called uh, the New England Jam Band. Uh, the only reason you were in the band was if uh, you were famous once. Apparently, I I could do that. <laughs> and uh, I played with Charlie Barron on guitar, John Butcher on guitar, uh, Franz Sheehan on bass, um, James Montgomery playing harp and singing, uh, the Uptown Horns. Uh, it was great, and that lasted about... I guess nine months, almost a year. And then John Busher had a recording contract. Charlie Farron had one. So all of a sudden I'm out of work again. So I put uh, myself, Craig McGregor and uh, Eric Cartwright. Uh, we started rehearsing at my house and we needed somebody else in the band. So we had a keyboard player for a while. Then we had another guitar player join us and we were going out as the knee tremblers. But because it was three quarters of fog hat, the promoters advertised it as such, and eventually I just succumbed to it and said, "Yeah, what the fuck?" Um, and I d- hadn't heard from Dave at all. He just—he in fact, he didn't even tell me he was moving to England. My wife told me she, she said, uh, "You know, Dave's moving to England." And I said, "No." <laughs> she said, "Yeah, his wife's packing up all their clothes and beds and chairs and sofas and sending it over to England." I said, "Uh huh." Uh, so it was a little strange. They didn't talk a lot, but I think he just wanted a change of scenery. Um, but he came back in 1989, 1990, somewhere around there. Well, there was, story. there was the Rick Rubin, the Rick Rubin thing of 93, I think, where he sort of said, hey, you should get back together, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I still don't know to this day exactly what happened there. I was led to understand, yes, Rick Rubin wanted the original band back together, so we did that. Um, and then I think Rick Rubin got busy. Uh, we weren't, uh, and there was not much going on, so all of a sudden we did two or three, four or five weeks touring with the original band, then we're out of work again for a, a year or so, whatever it was. Uh, during that time, Dave got busy writing stuff and, uh, I did other things and then we got back together and we recorded Return of the Boogeymen with ostensibly Nick Jameson, uh, producing. I was really pleased with it. Rod struggled, I think, with playing and, uh, just, uh, and then we, of course, we went on the road and 
wasn't, you know, all that happy being on the road. Uh, he struggled with it. it was myself and Dave, uh, I was in our blood, you know, we loved touring. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, I enjoyed the record, Return of the Boogeyman. I thought it was a good record. Yeah, it was. Uh, let me get, uh, get over to this one here because I, I don't want to forget this. We are August 19th. 2019 and in August 19th 1977 so 42 years ago to the day you released Fog Hat Live um oh really yes 42nd <laughs> anniversary today so yay right. but but yay. talk to me about that cuz that's at a time you know there's there's Kiss Alive there's Frampton Comes Alive eventually uh, Cheap Trick Live of Budokanda the live albums seem to have been the thing to move bands to the next echelon. Um, and, of course, Foghat Live seems to have done that because you sold more albums of that than anything else. So talk to me about recording that album, the importance of that album, and is it a live, live album, or did you go, like, like all the other guys, uh, and fix stuff up, fix a vocal, fix a drum, fix a... Or it, it, just talk to me about that album because forty-two years of, the, you know, the crown jewel, if you want. Yeah, uh, actually, what happened was um, we were supposed to go in back in the studio, and um, I would listen to um, every show we were doing. Our uh, front of house sound engineer, a guy called Bob Coffee, who I'm still good friends with, would give me cassettes every night after a show, and I could listen to what we were doing, make sure the tempos were. Uh, there was a lot of youthful exuberance back there, uh, and uh, and I I was the one who suggested doing a live album. Um, as I said, Rod and Dave were kind of struggling to put new material back together, and it was really um, the band was really playing great. Um, the only things we fixed there was a couple of uh, the vocal mic went out on a couple of songs or missed it. Uh, all the drums were what they were. Uh, bass was what it was. There was a couple of things we fixed. Um, we mixed it up in Sun Studios, where we actually did the Fall for the City album, and Nick G- Nick Jameson uh, produced it. No, it was it was a live record, and there was a, a the sad part was there was only like was it four songs on there, five songs. Something like that. Six. And I know, I know we were doing like at the time, hour and a half, nearly two hours of music. So I know there's a bunch more materials, but Warner Brothers didn't want to do a double album. They didn't think it was going to sell. Huh. Figure that one out. <laughs> uh, and about two years ago, I was out on the West Coast at Warner Brothers. We were talking about, uh, there's a couple of things going on. Uh, and they have, all that stuff, all our videos, everything from the day. And I said, let's see what other stuff we have from uh, when with those live recordings. And they said, well, uh, we don't know where they are. I said, well, let me go down and I'll have a look. And they said, uh, no, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean can't do it? I mean, I, I'm probably the one who would recognize the tapes and say, ah, because, you know, we were doing Shadow of the Feet. We, we did... Uh, uh, probably Stone Blue, I think we'd probably be recorded by that time. Uh, we would uh, have uh, some Chuck Berry stuff on there. We were doing a bunch of songs. Anyway, they they decided that I couldn't go down there and nobody's allowed down there to look through there. I said, well, who's going to do it then? Probably after I depart this, uh, somebody will say, yeah, look what I found. 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, the band was playing great. It, yeah, it's a live record, and uh, it was um, yeah, it was um, it was great. I enjoyed doing it. Uh, Nick Jameson did a great job mixing it, and uh, and all the percussion was um, my drum tech. And our uh, road manager did it. So it was uh, Dave Lang, my drum tech, was playing percussion behind me. And our road manager was also playing percussion. So that's all there as well. You hear some rattling and banging behind me. You know, it's strange that they would say that a double album wouldn't sell. I mean, Kiss Alive sold, Kiss Alive 2 sold, Aerosmith uh, Live Bootleg. I mean, a lot of of the albums were double live albums back then. It, It was sort of the thing to do but you know record companies sometime um since since we mentioned since we mentioned kiss and you mentioned stone blue in your answer let's just go over quickly to that album which was produced by eddie kramer the stories of course are not one of great love for each other there's sort of some static there Uh, first of all are those stories correct was there static or was Eddie just a great guy to work with? I mean, talk, talk to me a little bit about that album, Stone Blue. The album, I think, turned out rather well, despite the fact that Eddie Kramer is an asshole. It's unbelievable what an idiot he was. Uh, he would come in in the mornings and fall asleep uh, and or berate the sound engineers in the truck. We used, um, I think it was the RCA mobile unit, and we recorded... Uh, uh, the Woolworth Mansion out here on Long Island. It's a great sounding room. But Eddie was just obnoxious and uh, about halfway through the recording, I mean, I just wanted to smack the guy with a cymbal stand or something. He was just obnoxious. Not to me, not to the band, but he treated everybody around him like... uh, I found it offensive. You know, everybody's got, you know, something to say. And in fact, the engineers on it were terrific it was eddie who was the problem and uh so when uh, we started anyway finished the record we were starting the mixing stage and um i'm listening to uh the the drums i said eddie uh, we need to bring the uh, rack tom up and he said i can't do that i said pardon he said well i've already mixed the drums down i said really <laughs> so uh, i talked to my manager and said this guy's an idiot uh, and uh, he was getting, I think, three points at the time of the album. And uh, Tony Otita, our manager, said, you're fired and you're getting one point. And if you don't like it, that's tough shit. And uh, he was fired. And actually, the band mixed the album. We were out on the road and we were mixing it at various studios when we were out on the road. So... Uh, that's how that went. Yeah, I don't really need to put Eddie down any more than I already have. Such a fucking asshole. <laughs> right. And, and maybe he maybe he got that attitude from the Led Zeppelin and the Kiss yeah. and the I, I don't know. But uh, all right, let's. No, Zeppelin were okay to work with. I mean, they were fussy about what they were doing. I mean, I think he did a good job with them. But I also think um, uh, Jimmy Page had a lot to do with the mixing and how things turned out on that record. Uh, but that's another story. But he also produced a whole bunch of great records, so um, maybe it just didn't work with us. Uh, uh, I don't know if anybody else says things about him, have they? It, it, 
it's hard to get anything out of like the Kiss Camp because they're very good at being diplomatic, which or maybe they just had a great time with him. I don't know. Uh, and, and of course, Jimmy can't talk because he passed away, and I don't think uh, Led Zeppelin has commented much about it. So you know. Um, okay, so, since you mentioned Nick Jameson, uh, Jameson, uh, quite yeah. a bit. Uh, you know, first of all, I'm always amazed when I see him on TV or or hear him doing voiceover. You go, yeah. He goes, hey, that guy on 24. He that's the he was in Foghat. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny. That's right. Um, but he he comes in as a producer on um, I guess it was Rock and Roll Outlaws, the first one, right? Yeah, Rock and right. Roll Outlaws. Yeah. And then eventually he yeah. ends up playing with the band. Talk to me about his style and, and him as a producer and then having your producer play with you and play on the album. You know, there, there's it takes away that distance of outside ears and suddenly there's a vested interest and there's a different kind of dynamic. Uh, obviously, it worked out because Fool for the City is a great album. But but talk to me about Nick and, you know, his his current success and being in the band and producing and playing and just that whole package of Nick. Uh, well, uh, Nick and I uh, became good friends anyway. I was, uh, when I moved to the States, initially I lived up in uh, Bearsville and, and Woodstock area, where Nick was also the house engineer at Bearsville. He'd taken over from Todd Runger, I guess. And Nick and I just became real good friends. He actually helped us out on our first album. He mi- remixed a couple of songs uh, on there and put some uh, keyboards on a couple of songs. Um, uh, and so, you know, there was a connection. And we used to play uh, uh, badminton together, and we'd go out and hang out at various uh, clubs up there and, like, jam. Uh, Tony Stevens uh, was let go from Foghat, and we'd already auditioned Craig McGregor, who I particularly liked, but uh, our manager wasn't so sure about it. So then I suggested... Nick, well, actually, I asked Nick first. I said, Nick, you, you want to join the band and play bass? He said, yeah, that was my first instrument. He played in the band down in uh, Philadelphia, where he came from originally. So uh, we rented a bass up in Woodstock, drove down, and Rod Price and I owned a house out in, here on Long Island, and uh, we'd soundproofed the basement because we didn't want to bother the neighbours. And we started... Um, rehearsing and actually just jamming down there and uh so right actually came out a jam uh which nick jameson actually then arranged down there uh and uh, then dave said uh i've got some words that might fit that <laughs> that's how that came about nick was uh he's probably the one singular person that i learned more from about music and uh, playing and uh, everything, you know, to do with like being creative. Uh, Nick Jameson was the one who I, I learned the most from as, as one person. And you learn something every time you go in the studio, or every time you do something. But Nick was um, very generous with his knowledge. Uh, I love the guy. He's uh, horribly funny. It's just like, um, and when we do stuff like, um, we would swap instruments. We'd be sitting around like in either my house or, or Dave's house uh, around that time and there'd be piano guitars, you know, drums and stuff to bang and uh, Nick would uh, say, all right, swap. <laughs> I would play keyboards or a guitar or something and Nick would sort of show me what notes to play and what notes not to play and we would just have fun with it. Um, 
Nick, uh, yeah, Nick was a tremendous influence on the band. As you noted, um, you know, the Fall for the City album was probably, uh, you know, certainly a real highlight. And then he also produced the live album and various other records with us. So, uh, yeah, Nick Jameson is, uh, uh, a brilliant person uh, and one of the funniest people I've ever sort of uh, come across and his uh, his mind is like um he's he's pretty incredible he's he's uh, he's living in uh, Reykjavik in Iceland now and he's doing quite well there I believe and uh, yeah I love Nick he was a great uh a really good friend and uh, a great influence on this band yeah yeah absolutely um you you mentioned the song Slow Ride, so I'm going to ask you this. Uh, I, I used to, uh, before he passed away, I was friends with Doug Feger of The Knack, and we would get into the conversation about my Sharona, and he would always say, you know what, Mitch, it's like the golden albatross around my neck because it, it bought the house and it bought the pool and it gave me this lifestyle, but every time I went into the studio after, the record company would be, hey, great, love the demos, don't hear another my Sharona. Um did, was that sort of the same thing with Slow Ride and Foghat? Is it possible that a song is just sometimes too big or too iconic or too... Did you get that same kind of like, yeah, guys, that's, we love the new, mm, but we don't hear another Slow Ride? Is it a golden albatross or just a great song? Uh, no, certainly not an albatross around our neck. I love the song. Um, well, Foghat never, ever was told what to do by uh, the record company and or, and to some degree producers. Uh, the producer, when they joined us, you know, like Nick, uh, Nick Jameson and or Dave Edmonds, especially those two, they like joined the band. They were like the fifth member. Uh, record company never told us what to do. They were allowed to pick a single uh, because most of the time it was like we did or the songs we wrote and played. Now we did it was like to the best of our ability. So, it was up to them. Um, it, uh, no, that never bothered me. Um, like I said, Foghat always did it their way, as it were. You know, it was always the four of us in the studio. Um, though Dave was the main writer, and of course Rob Price was largely uh, instrumental in lots of stuff. He was a brilliant guitar player. Um, the band was in charge. Um, uh, so you rise and fall depending on what you do yeah some you know now and again people with uh management and or somebody might say something but generally speaking um we were left to our own devices which could be good uh could be somewhat of a problem actually um when it came to going in the studio the, everybody in the band was like focused it wasn't like you know we wouldn't go in there and like you know, have a party and get drunk and all that other crap. Uh, we saved that for um, after shows and when you were off the road. But when we're in the studio, it was we were serious. It, it, we, you know, music is, you know, it was always important to all of us in the band, especially myself and Dave. It was like, uh, this is what we live for. This is what we did when we were fortunate enough to get our shot with, with Albert Grossman and, you know, uh, Beyond Bearsville Records. And it was something that uh, I think we treated, um, I, I don't know if the utmost care is the right term, but it was 
it was special to us. It wasn't something you, you know, you fuck around with or try to, you know, it was like, this is serious shit, making records and being creative. Um, you know, there were obviously times when you'd sit there and go, what do we do now? Or, or we'd hum and ha about a tune. And, you, and if the song wasn't working, like, by about three takes, we'd leave it and then come back to it another day. Or uh, uh, it was really more than three takes once we'd rehearsed a song and got it down. Uh, but there again... Sometimes when you're in the studio, we would jam on stuff and then go, ah, here we go. And then Dave would say, oh, I've got some lyrics for that. <laughs> so, uh, no, we were we were uh, we were sort of uh, in charge. So um, no albatross, no albatrosses. I love playing that song. Every song we recorded. In fact, every year uh, we add like <clears throat> four or five songs to the set. But, you know, we'll we'll play Slow Ride, Fall for the City, I Just Want to Make Love to You, Stone Blue, probably Driving Wheel as well, you know, until the day I depart. And I'm fine with that because uh, I like the songs in the beginning. And uh, there's always ways to sort of move a few things around. Um, but uh, actually, we're, we're going over to, well, I, as you know, we're going to Germany and Belgium. And um, we're taking a couple of songs out the set and we're going to put uh, Eight Days on the Road, which we haven't played for two or three years, because uh, I just think it would uh, work better over there. So, um, you know, that'll be a challenge. We all have to remember the arrangement, and Charlie has to remember the words. Uh, but it's fun. You know, I love playing. We all love playing. Everybody has a blast out there. And sometimes when you get to some rooms, you know, you can't, you just can't, the stage is like either too loud or you can't hear the other instruments. And so when you press autopilot, but um, when, you, when you're on stage and everybody can hear each other, like which happens most of the time because we do sound checks, um, we have a blast. It's, uh, I'm, uh, I'm real fortunate and uh, I know how fortunate I am. And uh, yeah, I love playing this, in this band and uh, life is good. Life is great, and and I see we're at thirty five minutes, so I'll, I'll I'll ask maybe one or two more questions, and and we'll we'll say thank that's you. Fine. That's fine. Take, yeah, take your time. It's all right. Uh, but I do want to ask you about Lonesome Dave. Um, t- talk to me about him as a vocalist, but also what he meant to you, because here you are in Savoy Brown, and together you decide we're going to leave, we're going to go do something new. Um, talk to me about about him and and following or going with him and, and believing in this band because you know Savoy Brown was established. There was a brand name. You could have you know uh, what did he mean to you and and his voice because it's 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 one of the greatest voices in rock. Dave was uh, in many ways uh, the heart and soul of this band. He was he was a musical library. He was. Uh, like I think same as me. I, I, you never forget how to be a fan, and Dave was very much that. He was a fan of music. Uh, uh, I mean, I think you know that's why you get into it in the first place because you have this passion and love for music. Uh, Dave had this huge library of uh, rock, blues, country, uh, all sorts of music, and. Um, when we were on the road, uh, uh, like uh, actually, especially on the last tour, we had a bus tour that we did together. 
they would have either CDs and or cassettes. And after the show, we'd be sitting down in the front lounge of the bus having a glass of wine and some cheese and biscuits and stuff. And Dave would say, well, what do you want to hear tonight? And, I'd, and he'd, he'd offer selections from his... He had a suitcase filled with CDs and tapes. So uh, he was our... Uh, on the road, he was our um, DJ, if you will, when we were off, off. And he would often turn everybody on, like some of the new stuff, like the new punk bands or the bands coming out of England. Uh, he was... Um, Dave was fantastic to work with. Every time we went on stage, you knew that Dave would be giving it 110%. Uh, and I loved it for that. I still get chills before I go out on stage. As soon as you start playing, everything's all right. But, uh, you know, you walk out on stage in front of five, 10,000 people and it's like, whoa. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I still get chills. Dave was, um, he just gave it everything he had, even when he was sick. Um, I remember once I quoted in a magazine, I said, Dave's great. This is why Dave was still alive. I said, even when he's coughing up snot and blood, he still gives it 110. He turned to me and he, he read the article. He said, coughing up snot and blood. I said, well, he said, he didn't think much of it, but I think secretly he, he said, no, that's all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I missed him. Um, he was great. The only downside of knowing Dave is that you never knew him. Uh, he didn't talk. His conversations were either about music or he wasn't talking to you. He didn't, his opinions on other stuff, he didn't share. Uh, but music was, music was his voice. Um, and it was pretty much that. Like I said, when he moved back to England, he didn't even tell me he was going, which was, if you knew David, you sort of expected it but the fact that he didn't was kind of a little odd um but he was he was very quiet off stage he wasn't the rowdy one uh like you know the drummers and bass players tend to be um i'll tell you a quick story i've told this one before but we were um we had a day off in chicago and they said uh, you want to go out and see some clubs roger and i said yeah they didn't drive, and I was driving. And so we go to this cl a club in uh, Chicago. I think it was called Mother Blues. Anyway, we, we go into the door. We hand over our three bucks or five bucks, whatever it was. And I go to the bar to get myself a cognac, and I got a white wine for Dave. And I turn around. Dave's still standing in the doorway, transfixed with the band on stage. I go back to him and I give him his glass of wine. He says, you know who that is playing drums, Roger? And I said, no, Dave, who is that? He said, that's Freddie Bilo. Now, I knew who Freddie Bilo was. He played on uh, nearly all the chess stuff, uh, Chuck Berry. I mean, he was like one of the session drummers there. Great drummer. And uh, so they, the band took a break and Dave and I went over and introduced ourselves. And Freddie's looking at the two of us and he goes, uh, so you guys want to jam? I said, me and Dave said, yeah. And I thought maybe he'd play. But then he sort of goes off to the bar. And so Dave and I took over the second or third set for Freddie. He was uh, quite happy to have a few drinks and let us bang away. But uh, 
yeah, that was typical Dave. Dave was always up, sort of going out and jamming, and uh, and also Craig McGregor used to like to hang out, hang out with us as well sometimes. Yeah, great, uh, great memories, great story. Was there? And, and I'll just ask you this: when when you left Savoy Brown, was was there sort of a fear of the unknown, like what the f- are we doing? Or was it like, no, 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 we've got a plan and we are going to execute this plan and it is going to be terrific? <laughs> no, the typical musicians. No, there was no plan. In fact, the the night that um, we talked with Kim and Harry, uh, we went back to my room, uh, myself and, and Tony Stevens, and uh, Dave wrote... Uh, we started writing songs. Uh, Dave wrote Falls Hall of Fame that night. And maybe he already had it, but we played it that night. The next morning, uh, well, Tony, Tony Stevens was fired. Dave and I were asked to stay on if we wanted to. But next morning we met, um, Tony Stevens was always getting fired for some reason or another. Great bass player, though, but he was, um, I, won't, I won't go any further than that. He was a great bass player. Uh, so Dave and I went downstairs and had uh, breakfast with Harry Simmons, the manager. And we said, you know, thanks for the offer, but, you know, we're going to leave. But we'll stay in the band for as long as Kim needs us. And with that, Harry took a dark turn. And that was when he explained to us that we'd never work again in England or the States because he would ban us. And um, it was it was pretty weird. Yeah, um, He wasn't a particularly pleasant human being, I don't think. It wasn't Kim's fault. Kim had nothing to do with that uh, uh, Kim was a musician and he got on with his life. In fact, after we left, I think Savoy Brown had a couple of hits. So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there you go. Okay. Uh, we, we, we will, uh, we will leave it on that for today. Cause I mean, we've got, you know, 50 years of career. We could go on for three hours, but, uh, an absolute pleasure. And, uh, from that first album, um, Fog Hat in 72, all the way to today under the, uh, under the influence, I think it was. Um, yeah. great stuff great stuff and hopefully we will see you in uh, Canada get into the uh, Quebec Montreal area I'd love to come out and see the band but uh, as we say up here merci beaucoup thank you nah, merci beaucoup too uh, my French is not all that good but I am good with Italian though. you see I'm, uh, I'm not a... I'm good with Italian food though <laughs> well there you go. Merci. Have have a great tour. Happy forty second anniversary of the live album and uh till till we do this again. Okay, nice talking to you. Cheers. Bye bye now. Thank you. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.